Well, hello, listeners, to another segment. I think this is actually segment 10, uh, which we're doing of this apologetic series. If this is the first time joining us, just understand this is a series in which I uh, I take several, um, usually it's about two, tonight I'm actually going to do just one, verses in the Bible that have been twisted, misunderstood, completely misunderstood, heretically misunderstood and taught, um, and we try to realign them properly with the context of the passage and the fullness of the scope of the Word of God. Um, and so, you know, I remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer one time had a statement one time in his journal where he came over from Germany, which at the time was the theological capital of the world, and he came over to the U.S. to teach in seminary. And I'll never forget in his biography that I read, uh, I think Eric Mexis is the one who, who did it, his autobiography, or yeah, biography. Um, he wrote this as like a 350 page book that I read because I was fascinated about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But I remember what he stated one time where he said, I come over here and he says, people don't truly understand theology or doctrine. They cling to their cliche statements and what has always been taught. Now, that's not a direct quote, but that's essentially what Dietrich Bonhoeffer stated. He said, people today don't know how to study the Word of God and keep it in scope. And so this, this apologetic series that I'm doing has been one of my favorites because this is, this is very near and dear to my heart of how I study the Word of God, how I teach the Word of God, and how I think we need to understand the Word of God correctly. It safeguards us. So this is segment 10. Um, I'm only going to hit one. Tonight, um, it's going to be in Ecclesiastes nine nine. Recently, this one came up um, because the church that we attend has these things in which members of the body uh, were given an opportunity to write um, as we go, you know, um, not eschatology, um, expositorily through the Word, and we we break down these passages and then we submit it all, and then everybody in the congregation gets to read it. We we send it through email stuff, and so recently there's um, a. a close friend of mine that is actually in journey group with me is just a small group of people that we live life together and um, she had this one and her takeaway was just a little bit different than what I've always taken away from this and so we're going to run through this and we're going to kind of break it down a little bit more in the fullness of the scope of not only the the chapter but also the entire book of Ecclesiastes because let me tell you something real quick I've heard it said more times than I would like to have heard that at the end of Solomon's life, he was a little senile. At the end of Solomon's life, he got a little crazy, a little little crazy in the head, and he just kind of got weird. And so this book of Ecclesiastes is just these sayings that he's writing to his son in his senile state, his old age. He's gotten a little cuckoo. Um, I don't believe that could be farther from the truth. I think he's at his stage of being the wisest he's ever been when he wrote Ecclesiastes. I think he gets it. He understands what life is all about because he put his hand to the plow, living it contrary to what life is all about. And he found out at the end, vanity of vanities. All is vanity of what's under the sun. Everything that is in this world, if it is lived at the expense of chasing after God, fearing God, and obeying what he has called us to do and the mission that we have for us in the new covenant through Christ, it's all vanity if we're living apart from that. I think he is the wisest he has ever been. So we're going to get into this. I'm going to read verse 9. I'm going to back up and I'm going to read 7 through 10 to give a little bit more context to the passage. Um, and I'll tell you a story about a guy who once said that this was his life passage. And when we went and studied this and I brought it up and I, I exposed what this passage is really stating, 
he was completely just disheartened because he came up to me afterwards and he was like, that's my life verse. And you essentially just shattered my entire life verse. And he was upset with me because he wanted to cling to what he wanted this passage to state. But his eyes were open to see that that's not what it states. So let's read it. Here's the verse. Sorry for that um, lengthy intro to this, but we'll get into it. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So this verse is one that I've heard used at weddings in which the guy, you know, the, the, the guy who's going to be officiating the wedding the groom is going to be there and he's speaking to them and speaking to the congregation. And he brings up Ecclesiastes 9.9. He says, the word of God says that we should enjoy this life with the wife of our youth. Right? And he doesn't talk about the rest of the context of the passage. He just says, the word says we should enjoy all of our days with the wife of our youth. And I'm not in disagreement to that principle or that concept. I enjoy every day with my wife. But that's not what Solomon is writing here. Did you catch the word that's used? He says it. Under the sun, uh, I'm sorry, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Now, I'm going to be breaking down several scriptures and taking to a lot of different passages in order to kind of get a full glimpse of what this passage is stating. But I want to start with the concept of what does vain mean? All right. The, the Greek or the Hebrew word that's used here is Havel. Um, you could even say if you're like from the south, Habel. Um, here's what it means. Emptiness, vain or vanity, transitory or an idol. Now, it's, it's very interesting because it's not just simply saying, hey guys, this life is just fleeting and it's just short, so just live it up and enjoy life and do everything that you can to try to make this life so enjoyable and just really... Take every moment um, in because it's not going to last very long. Let's, let's look at some other passages in which this word specifically is used. And I want you to see the context that's, that wraps this word in other passages. Deuteronomy 32.21a They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their hebel, with their idols, as the ESV translates it. You can kind of see the context of what's kind of wrapping that word. I'm going to go to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 13 in this one. Here's what he says. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their Hebel. Psalms 31, verse 6 says it like this. I hate those who pay regard to worthless Hebel. Let me read that one again. I hate those who pay regard to worthless Hebel or idols. You see, what this word typically is associated with throughout the Old Testament is going to be idolatry. It's going to be things that are empty in and of themselves. 
It's going to be things that are transient, things that, that don't have an eternal value, that are worldly and have an expiration date, and are placed equal to or higher than our affection towards God. That's how this word is associated primarily throughout the entire Old Testament. And it doesn't typically have a good connotation attached to it. So when he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, it's no different. It doesn't have a good context to this word being used. Solomon very easily could have left this word off and he could have just said, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life. But he didn't because the spirit wrote through Solomon, Habel. He identified what that life that he's trying to um, get us to understand is a vain life. Now let me read, backing up, in 7 through 10. And I'm going to emphasize a little bit more here. He says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and all your toil at which you toil under the sun. Notice the the position under the sun. It's anything that is worldly. Anything that would be deemed worldly under the sun, not in heaven. And here's what he goes on to say in verse 10. And pay very careful attention. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now what is Solomon trying to write here? Because he uses a word that's not just talking about death. He's not just talking about everybody, if you read the King James, you might have it translated just simply grave. But that's not exactly what he's trying to state here. Yes, the word that's used here, Sheol, is the actual Hebrew word, can be referencing just simply a death or the underworld, the place of the abode in which the dead go. It can have a connotation to that. However, I'm going to show you several verses here. I'm going to read what the actual definition says. And I'm going to show you some different um, verses that use this exact same word um, in it. And I want you to understand that there's a deeper meaning to this rather than just, oh, you know what, we're all going to kick the bucket one day. Because the context of chapter 9 is all about those who die apart from hope. Because they pursued the wrong things in life. They chased after wisdom. They chased after love. They chased after lust. They chased after all these things. This is the concept of all of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says from chapter 1 all the way to the the end of chapter 12. I set my heart to everything that is out there. Under the sun. I chased after it. And you know what I found? That in the end... Everything is vanity. Enjoying life with the wife whom I love, vanity. It's an idol. Chasing after the wisdom of this world, it's an idol. Chasing after all my heart's desire, an idol. Chasing after the treasures and the pleasures of this life, an idol. 
That's the context of Ecclesiastes. And if you can't wrap your mind around Solomon stating that, then you will miss the entire premise of what Solomon is trying to pass down to his sons. This life has no value to it whatsoever apart from fearing God and keeping his commandments. For that is the whole duty of man. If you don't know where I got that from, then I would encourage you to go look at the very end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 13 through 14. But let's look at this word, Sheol. Okay? It's the Hebrew word for the Greek word Hades. Same place. Now I'd encourage you to go look in the New Testament and go find um, what corresponds and takes place in Hades. Because it's not good. It's, it's the place in which people go as a holding place of torment for those who did not have a, an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, those who have that abiding relationship go to a place called paradise. Okay? And that's almost like a holding place until hell is actually opened up. But Hades is not hell. Hades is a place of torment. Go read about the rich man Lazarus. And you're going to find that Hades is a place of torment. And you cannot go from Hades unto paradise. Your only destination that you await for is once hell is opened up after the great throne judgment, you'll be cast into that place. There is no hope. If you go to Hades, there is no hope of getting out. There is no purgatory. There is no sense in which you have to go pay some penance in order to get out or whatever. Or some people here on earth who are still alive have to pray for you to be able to shed their blood, to be able to get you out of purgatory sooner than what you, your life lived deemed worthy of. Nothing like that. Hades is simply a holding place of torment for those who die apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ without hope. So the very first thing is that Sheol is Hades. It's just the Hebrew to the Greek. And here's what it means. It's the underworld. The pit. A place of no return. Without praise of God. Punishment for the wicked. Extreme degradation of sin. Hades, the world of the dead. Now that's what the word means, and I would say that if you are just a novice scholar, you could look at that definition and understand that that is not just referencing death. It's something beyond death. Number 1633. If you've never studied this passage out in Korah's Rebellion, I would encourage you to do so because um, it's a fascinating study. But here's what he says in verse 33. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Now what's taking place here is um, Korah and Dathan and, and those who were attached with them, they rebelled against Moses and against his authority. And they said, we're all holy. We don't need you, Moses, telling us what to do. We're all holy. We're all God's people. You just need to silence yourself and, and be quiet and stop trying to be an authoritative figure over us. I'm paraphrasing what takes place. And so Moses is like, um, hey, God, what do I do with this guy? This is actually family. This is down the lineage of Moses' familial line, of which I believe that he was his cousin, which adds a different dynamic to it. But Moses goes to God and says, God, what do we do? And God tells him, you go back and you tell him, I want all of Israel to separate from Korah and from Dathan and from their family and from their possessions and from their livestock. I want you to separate entirely from them and you tell him this, that if they die in any way, that has already happened or that is normal for men. Then I'm not with you, Moses. But if 
they die in a way that is completely different, has never been done before, then everybody in Israel know that I am with you. So Moses delivers this. The people separate. Dath and Korah, they're all down. I kind of see it that like they're down in this valley or whatever. And all of a sudden it says that the earth opened up and swallowed them alive. And they went down into Sheol, to the pit. It wasn't that they died. It was that they were swallowed beyond death. I want to read you another one. Deuteronomy chapter 32. In 22, here's what he says. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. So again, he says, a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol. Again, not just referencing some semblance of just, oh, we just died, but you know what? Hey, we still have hope. No, this is, this is a, a death Apart from hope, down in the wicked, in the depths of Sheol. Obviously not identifying just physical death. Here you're going to find this one in 2 Samuel uh, 22, verse 6. And it says, these are the words that David spoke to the Lord. It says in verse 6, For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. He's talking about his disposition of his own heart of what's going on in this moment. And he's like, I have no hope. There's no hope. And he identifies it not just as a mourning or a grief, but as Sheol. Because Sheol is a place without hope. An extreme degradation of sin. A place in which there is no praise of God. It's just the definition of the word. So why do I so um, intently and, and systematically break down these two words? Because these two words give the context of the passage. See, if I were to read it apart from these two words, then yes, I could absolutely make this passage be talking about something in which I could um, look at it as I should enjoy the pleasures of this life. It is temporary. It does have an expiration date. And so I should just enjoy every moment as it comes. But that is the passage apart from these two words. When we throw these two words into the passage, we get the context. And the context is essentially Solomon telling his sons, Hey guys, you know what? If this is your lot in life, if this is what you want to do, if this is what you want to chase after, then just understand That your vain life that is guilty of idolatry will be putting God to the test. It will be inciting his anger and his wrath against you. And there's only one place for you. So go ahead. Let your garments always be white. Go ahead. Make sure there's oil on your head. Go ahead and enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And whatever you have already chosen to do. And what you want to put your hand to the plow of doing. Go ahead and do it. Live it up in your vain life. Because there's only one end for you. And that will be an end to Sheol. It will have no hope. For you have lived your best life now. Because one day you're going to stand before him. And you will not have your best life then. That's the context of the passage. And so there's some other things that I wanted to bring up in this one. Verse 7. 
He talks about eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. God has already approved what you do. That one throws people for a loop sometimes. But he talks about two, two interesting or three interesting words that he uses there. One, eat. The other one, drink. And the other one, be merry. Now, if you have any understanding of the word, you're going to understand that those three things in an earthly sense are actually very condemning to a person who chases after those things. In a spiritual sense, Jesus says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and find your joy in me. In a spiritual sense, it's a beautiful thing, but that's not what Solomon's referencing here. Solomon's referencing, go ahead and eat, drink, and be merry. Fill it up in the life of, this, uh, of your youth. Go ahead, put your hand to the plow and do everything that you want with all of your might. Enjoy your wife. Make your garments white. Put oil on your head so you look all fancy and, and nice. Because that's all you're ever going to get. It's essentially what he stated. So where does this phrase come from? Eat, drink, and be merry. Well, let's look at it. Genesis chapter 25 is the first time that I can see this verse being used, or these, this concept being used. And it's going to be with a guy named Esau. And here's what he says. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. That's essentially that he ate and he drank, he got his fill, and he went out merry and happy, and he rose up to go play. The context surrounding this is that Jacob deceived him by selling his by getting Esau to sell his firstborn birthright for a single meal. And he says, You know what, what do I have to do with a birthright? Because that's not going to help me right now. So yeah, Jacob, I'll sell you my birthright because I'm hungry right now. I want something right now. I want satisfaction right now. Sound familiar with Ecclesiastes 9? Give me my best life now. That's what I want right now. I'm going to chase after these things. I'm going to do all these things. And he says, then you're going to end up going to Sheol without hope. You can go back and, and look at Hebrews chapter 12. And you're going to find the exact same premise that's even right there. It's towards the end of it. I don't remember what it is where he says, make sure that no one among you is like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal and afterwards when he sought repentance, he found none even though he sought it with tears. That's a, a warning to the church. That no one among you be like Esau who sold his firstborn birthright. The blessing from the father that's in the inheritance of the firstborn. Which, by the way, Jesus is the firstborn. So essentially for us as Christians, that is us selling or giving up our inheritance in Christ for this world. Just like Demas. And he says, if you do that, don't think you can find repentance if you do it unto the full effect of it. Which is where James 1, 13-15 comes in. But you can go study that on your own. Exodus 32, verse 6. And here's what he says here. You might understand this one and know what's going on. Moses is delayed on the mountain. He hasn't come back yet. And it's been 40 days, right? And so they're like, where'd he go? We don't know what's happening. It probably hasn't been the full 40 days, but it's probably been close to it. And so the people decide to convince Aaron to make them a golden calf. And they say, you know what? He's delayed in coming back. So why don't we just go ahead and live it up according to what we want to do right now. We need something physical right before us that we can worship. And you know, we'll even throw a feast to God in honor of this golden calf. 
Because he's delayed. We don't know when he's coming back. Fast forward that to today. There's many Christians out there today who say, "Ah, Jesus probably isn't coming back in my lifetime, so I'm just going to go ahead and live my best life now. I only live once. I'm going to go ahead and live it up. Well, let me just give you some, some news. He is coming back. And it's our job to be ready for it so that when he knocks on that door, we can open the door to him at once. This is what Luke 12 is all about. We're going to get into Luke 12 in just a little bit. But here's what he says in verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now these are the two of the earliest times in which this verse or this expression is used. And as you can see, it's not in a good light. It's actually quite the opposite. Now, if you go into Luke chapter 12, verse 19, you're going to find this premise here. And I'm going to talk about kind of the context behind it. But he talks about Jesus gives this parable of the rich fool, right? Just read the parable, and you're going to find that the context behind this phrase is also brought up again, but it's not in a good light. He says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And again, Luke 12, starting at verse 13. I'm going to paraphrase it until I get to verse 19. And Jesus says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator of you? He said, look, I want to tell everybody that's here, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You know what that word for covetous actually translates to? As 1 Corinthians 5 says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Didn't we just talk about what Hebel means? Idolatry. You see the significance and the correlation? Take care and be on guard against all you could just say, Hebel. Vanity or idolatry. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So he told him this parable that a, a rich man's um, uh, land produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I've got all this stuff, but nowhere to store it. So I'm just going to tell you what, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns so I can store all my stuff here. And I'll say to my soul, verse 19, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He says, you're a fool because you began to try to live for yourself. You wanted the physical pleasures of this life at the expense of your spiritual soul. You see, we weren't designed... To go and live our best life now apart from Christ. We weren't designed to go and live it up in this world. Don't give in to this health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Because I want to tell you as what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, 8 through 9. It is a different gospel. It is not the one of Christ and him crucified. It is not the one that bears the cross. It is one that bears the mark of Satan more than it does the mark of Jesus. You have fast forward to Luke 12 again, 45 through 46. And listen to what he says again when he talks about the wise manager, the faithful manager. It says it's the one whom his master will find so doing when he comes, serving the master even at the expense of himself. He says that person will be blessed. But listen to what he says in 45. But if that servant, the servant to the master... If that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. Sound familiar? Exodus 32. 
and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Master, that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Man, I, I hope that you're, you're tracking with me on what I'm trying to lay down here. And that you're seeing that the word of God is expressing that Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10 is not referencing this should be what you chase after. And it's actually part of your privilege in this life to be able to have that to do. Instead, it's saying, if this is what you choose to chase after, then you will die without hope. Because the rest of the New Testament even corresponds and upholds this concept. I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 14. And 16 through 20. And I understand this can be a a weighty text because there are so many people out there today who have been hoodwinked, if you will, into believing things about passages that just aren't true because they themselves do not see it with the spiritual eyes in the fullness of the text. Here's what he says in Luke 14, 16 through 20. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see to it because you know what? God's already approved everything that I do. I'm putting my hand to the plow of doing it mightily. Ecclesiastes 9. Please have me excused. I can't follow you right now, Jesus. I just can't do it. Because I just got to put my hand to the plow and work. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. I'm sorry, Jesus. I just can't come along this time because my life is just too good here. I'm blessed. Listen to this next one. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Notice he didn't even say, please have me excused. He just said, I can't come. I'm enjoying my youth with the wife whom I love. Sorry, Jesus. I can't come. Oh, I wonder what Jesus is going to say in corresponds to this. Verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He says, if that's what you're going to chase after in this life, and you're going to enjoy the wife of your youth, and you're going to go out there and just... Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. And I'm sorry, you're going to miss the call. You're going to miss the invitation on that last day. You will not sit at the supper, at the great banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will miss it. 26 or 27 says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 1 Corinthians 7.29 says, The appointed time is grown short from now, and those who have wives live as though they had none. You don't believe me? Go read it. That's literally Paul saying that the appointed time has grown short. From now on, those who have wives don't live life to the fullest with the wife whom you love. He says, live as though you had none. 
You're on mission. Civilians live it up with their wives. Soldiers do not. 2 Timothy 2.4 No no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Let me just tell you why many people choose to live their life with the wife whom they love instead of on mission with the God they love is because their aim is actually not to please God, it's to please themselves. Solomon is not being senile. He's actually the smartest he's ever been. He's not a crazy person. He's as wise as he's ever been. And he starts off this book in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And in chapter 12, verse 8. He begins to end it with vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And then he ends it with this. After his entire life lived, in which he learned that he set his heart to pursue everything that there was under the sun. Wives, he spared himself none. 700 wives and 300 concubines. He gave his heart to pursue whatever it wanted. And he found that in the end of all things, he realized that it was all vanity. And that the whole duty of man is summed up in chapter 12, 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And if you're part of that mass populace today in Christendom that would say, well, uh, I'm in Christ and I'm saved. God will not bring any of my deeds into judgment because I was cleansed from them all. Let me just tell you that in and of itself is a heresy. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Romans 14.12, they all teach the same thing. That you and I, who even those who are in Christ, will stand before him to give an account. For everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil, we will give an account. He has not forgiven all of your past, present, future sins when you got saved. He only wiped away the past. The future is up to you. This is why 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me ask you, 60 years after John's conversion, why is he having to state that? Why is he having to say it in the present tense? Not trying to tell the people as a reminder, Hey guys, remember that when you got saved, you were cleansed from all of your unrighteousness. He doesn't say that when we confessed our sins, He was faithful and just to have forgiven us of our sins. He uses the present tense, 60 years after his conversion. So he says, conditional, if we confess, then he's faithful to to cleanse us. So the whole duty of man is to live on mission and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The same premise is even in light in the New Testament. And so I'm going to encourage you to make sure that when you read through verses, 
Don't study it in light of what scholars say. Don't study it in light of what people say. Don't study in light of what I say. You study it in light of what he says. But what he says must be contextual in the fullness of the text. Not just in the passage. Not just in the chapter. Not just in the book. Not just in light of the old or the new covenant. But in light of the entirety of scripture. And if a truth that you hold to does not line up with the fullness of the text, you're wrong, God's right, every time. So should I enjoy life with my wife? Absolutely. But not at the expense of the mission that I'm on as a soldier of Jesus Christ. For a kingdom that is not of this earth. Y'all be blessed.